Welcome to Office Hours, a social science podcast produced by the Society Pages at the University of Minnesota. Join us for conversations with prominent scholars, writers, and researchers as we discuss their ideas. Come in! Today on the podcast, we welcome Dr. Victor Rios, who is an associate professor of sociology at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Victor's book, Punished, Policing the Lives of Black and Latino Boys, analyzes how juvenile crime policies and criminalization affect the everyday lives of urban male youth. His book has received widespread recognition, including winning the Oliver Cromwell Cox Book Award from the American Sociological Association. Welcome to the podcast, Victor. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you. Well, um, today I thought we could talk a little bit about your book, Punished, um, Policing the Lives of Black and Latino Boys. And you focus in your work a lot on this topic of criminalization and the criminalization of uh, these young boys' lives. Um, And that seems like it's been a pretty relevant topic in the media and in current events. Have you found that to be the case? Oh, yes. I mean, uh, you know, in the media lately, we've been hearing about uh, these uh, police shootings and, mm-hmm. and killings of, of uh, black and Latino men. Um, and I think as a society, we're starting to pay a little bit more attention to the issues, especially after Ferguson and the big protests. And the way I look at it is that the killings, the police killings of unarmed uh, uh, black and Latino men are just the tip of the iceberg. They're mm-hmm. just sort of those extreme cases that happen to get caught on, on video. Uh, but the more everyday kind of practice that takes place in many communities is the criminalization of, of young people, of young black and Latino boys in particular. Um, stop and frisk, for example. Mm-hmm. Schools imposing zero tolerance policies. Uh, entire communities seeing uh, kids that are wearing baggy clothes or that are showing some sign of, of gang or turf behavior, uh, seeing these kids of, as irreparable c- criminals before they even catch a case. Hmm. Yeah, interesting. And I, and I like the way you just said it, that it's sort of the, the extreme tip of the iceberg, but what you write about, what you research are kind of these everyday interactions, these really kind of chronic incidents in the lives of these young men that they face on a daily basis. Yeah, so some examples are, uh, for example, there's a young man in the book, his name's Tyrell, I met him when he was 14, and I followed him for three years, Mm -hmm. and I got to see him sort of grow up in this context, and then hear his story about uh, being younger, Mm -hmm. and so he told me about how in fifth grade, you know, uh, the police would stop him, and he would say, officer, I'm I'm only in fifth grade, why are you stopping me? And the officer would say, well, you, do, you look like a drug dealer, not like a fifth grader because you're mm. too tall. Wow. And so, like, this idea of, of little boys not even being able to have a childhood because they look like criminal suspects to, mm-hmm. to the state. And actually, one recent example is this uh, 12-year-old uh, mm-hmm. black boy in Cleveland, right. uh, Tristan Rice, who was shot and killed by police. Right. Uh, and the police officer said he looked older. Um, so we have that issue of, of children not being able to enjoy their childhood and being sort of punished, rebelled, police because they look like at, at some point they might commit a crime, so why not crack down on them now? And that kind of philosophy and practice has had a devastating effect on the lives of some of these young men. So for example, you know, it's, you don't even have to catch a case anymore, hmm. right? 
before you even catch a case, you've already been marked mm-hmm. uh, and you've already been treated as a criminal. So by the time you catch a case, it's almost like you're you're prisonized. You're already mm-hmm. used to uh, being treated as a criminal justice subject, mm-hmm. and that brings about a different kind of identity, right. a different kind of being in the world. You're kind of uh, you feel like a suspect. You're suspect of others. Uh, you're in a crisis, an identity crisis, where you don't know if you belong in the institution, like in school, mm-hmm. or if you actually belong in in the prison, and sort of police become the mediators here because they really hold a stake in where you end up in life as a young person. Yeah, wow. And you have a really unique sort of entree into this line of work from your own past experience. So maybe for listeners that don't know as much about your own background, maybe just speak a little bit about how you got interested in researching this topic in the first place. Yeah, well, you know, I... I come from uh, these communities. I was uh, raised in Oakland, California. Mm-hmm. Uh, from a very young age, I uh, really got exposed to some of the uh, violence and and drug abuse uh, in the community I was living in. Um, as a teenager, I dropped out of high school. I ended up being incarcerated three times mm-hmm. in juvenile hall and really just uh, didn't have a whole sense of a better future for myself. I really thought, okay, I might end up dead or in prison, or if I'm lucky, maybe one day I'll be a mechanic. Mm-hmm. And th- that was my aspirations, not because I come from a backward culture, or not because my community is backwards, but because of the fact that I had not been provided these tools by schools, by uh, my community, in my household, mm-hmm. it was just not a possibility for me to be provided these tools to understand myself as someone that in the future could accomplish something. Mm-hmm. And so as I'm growing up in this environment, uh, I have very, uh, very little sense of a future for myself and uh, really begin to lose hope. And one day, my best friend was shot and killed in front of me at age mm-hmm. 15. Mm-hmm. And this is when uh, either I would end up uh, changing my life around or end up dead or in prison. And a teacher stepped up, Mm -hmm. helped me out, put me in some programs, got some mentoring, began to catch up on my credits for uh, high school, and ended up graduating and getting into college. Mm -hmm. And so it was this really combination of of uh, being provided many opportunities Mm -hmm. and then being willing to change that really allowed me to to become who I am today. Right. So it was that combination of not just having the opportunity presented, but your own willingness to engage that opportunity. And that's one of the things that you talk about in your book that I really appreciated is the agency of young people. So you talk both about how these young men are being criminalized by the system, the systems around them, the state and schools and all that, but at the same time, the ways that they're exercising their own agency. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about some examples of that, of how you saw the young men um, making choices in the midst yeah. of their environment? There's a young man in the book that says, um, it's, like they, it's like they strapped a bomb on my back, but I'm the one that pulled the trigger. Mm. And it's it, it, it's it, it's a situation where the state, uh, society, institutions 
misunderstand these kids in many ways, hmm. misrecognize them, and then before you know it, systematically strip them of their dignity. And as they're doing that, these kids are building resentment, mm -hmm. um, and and sometimes they just blow up. Mm -hmm. And and that's what he was describing. That hey, you know what? I understand that I have a responsibility here, hmm. and that's an unfortunate uh, matter because many scholars have actually written about how um, there's a blame game among these kids in the inner city that they're actually blaming others for their shortfalls. Hmm. And it's kind of a theme in urban ethnography where right. they're kind of saying, hey, you know what, um, I'm here because others, the system, my family, whoever has failed me, it's like an, an easy excuse, a right. cop out. Right. I'm not a good father because, you know, the system. Right. Um, but there's something a social fact that really contradicts that and that social fact is that in our society in our culture we live in a personal responsibility world right and so these kids from young ages have been inculcated mm -hmm. to take personal responsibility to take responsibility for their actions uh, and so when I talk to them hmm. I ask them this question who's Who's at fault here? Right. Is it you? Is it the system? Is it you? Who? And they say to me, in their own words, actually, it's me. Hmm. I'm the problem. Wow. And because as a society, we've taught them. Right. Maybe your schools are failing. Maybe the police is beating you down. Uh, maybe there's no social support networks for you in the community. But... But regardless, it's your fault. Mm -hmm. And so instead of thinking of these young people as individuals who are blaming the system for their shortfalls, we should think of them as individuals that actually have been taught to blame themselves and therefore um, sort of lose hope and then change the way we approach them instead of blaming them, mm -hmm. uh, finding ways to provide them opportunities. And so the, the youth that change their lives around in, in the book, uh, we're the ones that found individuals that provided them opportunities, mm -hmm. that helped them uh, regain, reclaim their dignity. Mm -hmm. So um, a sort of policy implication here is right. that we should uh, really focus on restoring people's dignity. So mm -hmm. dignity enhancement as crime suppression. Mm -hmm. We want people to not commit crime. We want right. people to rehabilitate. We want people to go back to school. Right. Well, let's enhance their dignity. Let's, uh, you know, let's find ways to reconnect them back, reintegrate them mm -hmm. back into the community. And, and in the sociology of delinquency, this is sort of a classic way of, of thinking of it that you could either do sort of disintegrative shaming right. or reintegrative shaming. Right. Right. You could either just shun people completely, never let them come back or physically or symbolically or reintegrate them and allow them a second chance. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So um, how did you actually go about, let's talk a little bit about some of the evidence, I guess, that you bring to bear on, on these topics. And how did you go about actually doing the study that's behind the book, Punished? Well, I... Uh, 
I was a graduate student at UC Berkeley, and I was taking uh, courses in urban ethnography and in uh, sort of uh, the carceral state, and, and I got a little annoyed because mm. my colleagues and professors were talking about ghettoized populations mm -hmm. in a very foreign way to me. Huh foreignizing them, right. othering them. And I said to myself, man, like, I thought I knew nothing mm -hmm. about my own community. And I thought that the experts were here. Mm -hmm. But I realized that young people in the community knew a lot more about the system right. than what a lot of my colleagues knew mm -hmm. about the system. So that annoyance led me to the streets of Oakland again for a haven, uh -huh. for intellectual... Uh, development interesting and and I got there and I'm talking to the kids and so it's it's not theorizing about but it's theorizing with uh -huh. and so I just began to like follow them and see how they were talking what they were talking about how 10 years later from my time on the street things had changed right. juvenile justice policies had changed if I committed the crimes I committed as a juvenile today as a juvenile mm -hmm. I would probably be in the system or under the system supervision for at least 20 years of my life. Mm, wow. You know, and I, and, and so the system changed that drastically in 10 years. Right. These kids were getting, catching cases like catching a cold. Yeah. Right. And it was, it was so, you know, striking to me that I couldn't call myself an insider because mm. it was a different world in 10, in a decade that passed. Right. And then, but I also couldn't call myself an outsider because the outsiders were really on the outside. <laughs> so what was I? Right. right? And right. so as an ethnographer, I began to just be more reflexive and think critically about the many instances that I was actually, just like my own subjects or participants, I was maneuvering back and forth between mm -hmm. multiple worlds. Right. So I was both an insider and outsider, neither nor between and betwixt. Right. It was that approach that allowed me to be okay mm. with be there, be not not being the authority on anything, and not being an insider, not being an outsider, but in this in between world, where from there I could think about, theorize, and build ideas about what was happening mm. in the lives of these young. Yeah. Was it a point of contention at all? I'm just thinking about like your dissertation committee, like to, were people okay with like, you're kind of, you're going home. I realize it's not the same as the home that you were in a decade ago, but to do your research in a place that's so kind of familiar, was that something that you kind of had to like defend or how did that go over? Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's like, like I would say, oh, you know, I'm studying criminalization and people, it's kind of like, What's that? Right. Because at the time, really, in the literature, criminalization was the, the changing the law mm. right. to make a behavior criminal. criminal. Right. So unless you were changing the law, uh, you, you couldn't really speak of criminalization. Mm. But I saw it like the community saw it, like the kids saw it as a social process. Right. I saw it as an interactional mm -hmm. phenomenon. Hmm. Um, as a subject formation 
sort of approach. And if you look at it in that way, criminalization is everywhere. Right. And it, it surrounds some people. Mm -hmm. um, it's ubiquitous. Right. And so it, it became uh, understood to me as a youth control complex. Yeah. That there's young people growing up, and from young ages, you know, the school sees them as, you know, gang members, and there's zero tolerance for gang members, so you're out of school. And then the officer sees them on the street corner smoking marijuana, and they pick them up, and they put them on probation. The probation officer sees them as, well, hey, according to broken windows theory, according to our approach of policing, if you're smoking weed and violating probation, maybe one day you'll go kill somebody. So right. let's nip it in the butt now. Right. And so they uh, would end up getting incarcerated, spending a few days, violating probation, spending a few weeks. And before you know it, these kids would catch these long records for stuff that was very rarely mm -hmm. serious crime or right. violence. Right. Mm. Right. Which brings me to another point that I really, um, really appreciate and really latched onto as I was reading the book was um, the idea of the, um, the over-policing, under-policing paradox and uh, that that these communities like the, the ones in Oakland that you're studying can be at, at the same time uh, over-policed for all kinds of maybe little crimes or less serious crimes, but under-policed in maybe some things that are arguably more important, like say homicide or, you know, uh, more violent crimes. So I'm wondering if you could just say a little bit about that, how you saw the, that sort of over-policing, under-policing paradox taking place. Yeah, so so the way I saw it was that there was like one example is uh, on a routine basis, there was kids 13, 14 year old kids hanging out in front of a liquor store loitering mm -hmm. and the police would come snatch them up, handcuff them, throw them in the back of the patrol car. A, a few times I happened to be one of the people that got thrown in the back of the patrol car because I was a little bit younger and some mm -hmm. people thought I was part of that little crew on the street. And, and then um, around the corner at an apartment complex, Everyone in the community, including myself, knew who the uh, guys that were running the serious crime stuff right. were and where they hung out and where they sat and where they waited for all of their sort of uh, workers to come and, and either do the dr big drug stuff with them or go do the big violent stuff with them. We all kind of knew, right? The community knew when something was going to go down. They knew who the characters were. Right. But somehow the police were so busy catching the little fish yeah. that they would let the shark get away. Right. And, you know, that's a small, small percentage of inner city young people, right. you know, are actually the ones doing the violent crime, but yet somehow homicides are unsolved. Right. There's a new book called Ghetto Side. And the whole argument there is that these uh, homicides in the ghetto go unsolved because of not because it's necessarily a bad policing, right. uh, but, but because of uh, the good policing is not concentrated in that area right. um, because as a society, we don't pay the same kind of acknowledgement to those murders right. over murders that happen outside of the ghetto. Yeah. This is where Louis Quant's sort of idea of uh, sort of the ghetto as this urban condom, 
-hmm. you know, sort of comes into play. We're sort of just, just you know, just keep it contained, keep it over there. Right. If, the, if the homicides happen there, we'll pay some attention, but it won't be major attention. Right. Even the media forgets about it at times. So this reporter that wrote uh, Ghetto Side right. created a blog where she showed every murder victim. And that, when you show someone's face and their mm -hmm. family, you humanize people, right? right? You, you, you give them dignity even if in death. Mm -hmm. uh, other, other humans react. Right. But that wasn't happening, and that doesn't happen when when someone in the ghetto gets killed. It's a different kind of um, um, uh, mourning, mm -hmm. right? It's sort of more those people are mourning for one of theirs getting killed. But when one of one of ours, right, out here in the in the conventional world gets killed, it's it's a big shock, and we want justice and good policing goes into it, and the and and, and the crime gets solved. Right. And so we have to find a way to equalize um, policing in our society uh, to make the good policing enter into the inner city, the community policing enter into the inner city and, and become a permanent part of, of the community mm -hmm. rather than just uh, once in a while we'll, you know, we'll implement some community program that might help the problem. Right. Um, so what are some things that you hope people learn from your work what do you hope either other academics or policy makers like what what do, you, what do you hope people take away from it and maybe more importantly do in response to it well i think that there's two visions here the utopian vision is that you know all children have a fair shake at a decent education good programs good mentoring um, that when the the family fails a student, the youth, the child, that the state is there to, to compensate for it, to to be a surrogate parent, to find ways to, to send mentoring and social workers and therapists to the mm -hmm. inner city and help out these kids, um, to teach parents how to heal from, from their own wounds, their own traumas, and become better parents. Mm -hmm. um, and that police become a force that when I see you as an officer, I see hope, I see uh, security and safety. Mm -hmm. feel like you could help me solve my problem, even if it's a little bicycle that got stolen. Right. Wow, this is, that's, that's a lot of dreaming. <laughs> that's a big dream, but wait a minute. If you go to the middle class neighborhood, uh -huh. the officer is walking around or patrolling around and right. knows the neighbors and solving the small time right. you know little issues you know because they have the time to do so right, right. so I think we need to invest in that as a society mm -hmm. better uh, sort of uh, more sort of community-based form of policing we need to go from sort of this kind of warrior mm -hmm. uh, war tribe kind of uh, right method of policing you know we're we're a war tribe you're a war tribe we're gonna take you out right before you take us out speaking of ferguson <laughs> speaking of ferguson right. and then on the flips you know and then but then the alternative model is sort of a peacekeeping policing right mm. a policing where you know a dignity enhancement policing where i'm mm. there to keep the peace 
and to enhance people's dignity. That's my job. Hmm. Of course, there's a criminal, someone that commit. I'm going to go after them. I'm going to take them out. Right. But if there's someone that is, you know, has issues, I'm there to help them out, to serve hmm. them, to protect them, you know, and not the sort of dichotomous role that police play in our society. I think uh, it was a, a rapper from Oakland. I forgot his name, but he said it best. He says, you know, some patrol cars, they say, to, to serve and protect. Mm -hmm. And he said, the police are here uh, to protect white people and to serve, as in beating up, mm -hmm. black people. Right. And so um, that we can change that, mm -hmm. right, dichotomy. Um, that bifurcation of police officers, one really great sort of, you know, friendly helping the community and the other sort of cracking down on, on, on young people. Mm -hmm. And I think we get a, a step closer. So that's the utopian vision. Uh -huh. Now, the more practical, I'm a pragmatist, so yeah. the more practical for me is like, hey, let's change our interaction with kids. Hmm. You know, it won't solve every problem, but... If, if I'm a teacher, I'm going to approach these kids and believe in them and show them, you know, believe in them so much that I trick them into believing in themselves. Right. You know, I'm going to be there. I'm going to smile. I'm going to be show, show like I, if no one else out there believes in you, I do. Mm -hmm. You know, I see a light in you. And every day the job should be, hey, you can do this. The interaction should be positive. And people mm -hmm. should be incentivized, rewarded, promoted based on positive interactions. Mm -hmm. For police officers, same situation. I improve the, the quality of interactions. Let's quantify them. Let's count them. Let's see how many times as an officer you have a positive interaction. Let's reward you based on these positive interactions with community members, with youth. Won't solve all the problems but it's a good start. Wow. Well, I thank you very much for your time today, Victor. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. That was fun.